Hello and welcome to the Free Life Community Church Podcast. My name is John DeLille, and I'm the communications guy at Free Life Community Church in Terre Haute, Indiana. Each week, Senior Pastor Dan Willis brings a rich, detailed, and relevant message grounded in Scripture, which is recorded on Sunday mornings and made available for you right here. You can find more messages at freelifecc.com or in the Google Play and iTunes podcast app. Hey, if you've benefited from listening to these messages, we ask that you try to help us out. You can help us out in two different ways. First, you can give us a rating in the app store that you use. Secondly, share this podcast with a family member, a friend, or a colleague. This really does help us to get these messages into the hands of the people who can really benefit from them. This week, you'll hear from Executive Pastor Chris Robinson. Question that I can't ask the youth group because none of them were alive at this time. Who remembers 2002? (laughs) Yeah, right? I mean, sure, right? Well, if you do, you may remember that in 2002, a certain movie came out starting a series of other movies. That movie was The Born Identity, starring Matt Damon. Does everybody remember The Born Identity? Anybody ever seen Born Identity? Whatever. So, uh, I need to have a disclaimer here that it's not a Christian movie, and there used to be a person in this congregation, if I ever made a movie reference, they went and watched it. So I need, to, I need to claim that I don't necessarily recommend that you watch this. Now, in 2002, I wasn't saved, so for me to watch it back then wasn't a big deal. Now, even nowadays, it may not be a big deal, but with the understanding that they don't value human life and stuff like that, but nonetheless. So last time I made a movie reference, somebody used to go and watch those movies and be like, that wasn't a great movie. I'm like, well, I wasn't saying it for you to go watch it, but nonetheless. The Born Identity came out. And if you've never seen this movie, it's a movie based on a 1980 novel. And uh, the main star suffers from amnesia at the beginning of the movie. And he's trying to understand who he truly is and why he's learned all these skills and how he learned all these skills. Well, at the meantime, you have a CIA cover-up going on. And he's just, he doesn't know how he learned all these things. Well, as a result of this movie doing so well, there was actually more that came out. If you're not familiar with those, it's the Born Supremacy, Born Ultimatum. Then one came out called the Born Legacy, starring Jeremy Renner. If you may know him as Hawkeye in the Marvel Universe. And then another one that just came out, I think 2016, 2017, called Jason Bourne, which is the name of the main character. I've not seen it. I don't know anything about it. But there's, there's, a, there's a whole slew of movies that you could just binge watch if you've not seen them. Now, I will tell you that the first three all follow the exact same formula, the exact same. There's a thing on YouTube, there's a video that highlights how the first one, the second one, and the third one are exactly the same, just different characters. So, if you binge watch it, you might be like, this is the same movie over and over again. Yeah, it kind of is, but nonetheless. But what makes this first one so novel, you know, a lot of times if you watch a sequel to a movie, you're like, man, that sequel wasn't as good as the first. Or if there's three of them, you're like, why did they even make a third one? The second one wasn't that good, it was okay, but the third one was awful. So what makes this first one so novel? Is it the fact that he's got so many skills that he gets into a knife fight with an ink pen and wins? That's pretty cool. Or is it the fact that because of all the knowledge and stuff that he doesn't know about, he stays one step ahead of the enemy? That's pretty, you know, that's interesting. Kind of makes the movie interesting. No, I think what makes the movie so novel, in my opinion, is the fact that Jason Bourne is so desperately trying to figure out his true identity. Let that sink in for a second. Jason Bourne is desperate throughout this entire first movie and eventually goes on to learn who he is and whatnot. I mean, you can't have four movies without him figuring that out, right? But this first one, he's so desperate, so desperate to figure out who he is that he puts his own life in danger. Now, we may not put our own lives in danger, but I would venture to say that some of us, at one point in our lives, were desperate to discover who we truly were. And maybe some of us, if we're willing to admit it to ourselves, may still be at that point. But we don't know who we truly are. 
We don't know why we exist. We don't know where we fit in. We don't know what we're supposed to do. And even some of us in here may get to the point where we think we figured it out, but we have what's called an identity crisis, where we put our faith, hope, and trust in some particular identity, and because something happened to that thing, we have an identity crisis. I mean, think about it. Athletes do it all the time. They put their identity in who they are as a football player, or a baseball player, or a basketball player. Well, what happens when they get cut? What happens when they get hurt? They wrap their entire lives in that particular identity, and then all of a sudden it's gone. We're actually, uh, for men's Sunday school, we're doing a Bible study called Make the Call, written by ex-Georgia football and Miami University coach Mark Richt. And he talks about how he put his entire identity in who he was as a football player. A little trivia knowledge, if this ever comes up in your life, I doubt it will, but Mark Richt coached those two teams. Before that, he was quarterback at Florida State University. He was the backup to Jim Kelly. I don't know if you're football fans, Jim Kelly used to coach, or coach, play for the Buffalo Bills and led them successfully to the Super Bowl four times, but unsuccessfully never won. So, a little bit of trivia, if that ever comes up, if you ever played Trivia Pursuit or whatever, but there you go. So Mark Richt ended up being a backup, and he had his whole identity as a football player taken from him because he never got the start, and whenever he did, it didn't really matter to him anymore. So he had to try to identify himself, eventually got saved, and realized that his identity was in Jesus Christ. You see, the longing to discover who we truly are is universal, and really can be answered with three questions. Who am I? Where do I belong? And what am I supposed to do? These are impossible questions for any one of us to really answer for anybody else. We can give you ideas, we can give you suggestions, but until, until you truly figure that out on your own, will you truly understand who you are, where you belong, and what you're supposed to do? But for God, these are easy questions. In fact, they're so easy, he knew we were going to ask them. He said, you know what? I've already given you the answers to those. I've given those to the Apostle Paul. Got any more brain busters? <laughs> These questions, while they may be difficult for us, God's like, I've, I've got the answer. All you got to want to do is want to know the answer. So today, let's see if we truly want to know those answers. As we look to the answers to these questions, we'll continue in our all-in theme with Pastor's current series, Committed to Christ's Church, which we'll look at Romans 12, which is Paul's instruction about spiritual gifts and ser the service and the call to lead holy lives. This actually starts in verse 3, but however, I feel it's important to know what verses 1 and 2 say so you get a whole idea of what this chapter is. So, Verse 1, what is the most important thing that shapes our identity? It's our relationship with God. Paul says in verse, or verse 1 of chapter 12 of Romans, if you have your Bibles, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So the most important thing about our identity is our relationship with God. Therefore, in view of God's mercy... Do you know what that means? Your identity is shaped by what he has done for you. Now, I, I can't go through everybody in this room, but he's done something for each and one and every of us, all of us. Something different, something unique in view of God's mercy. And not only that, for all of us, he sent his one and only son to the cross. For all of us, every single person in this room, every single person out there in this world. Now, not everybody accepts that, sure, but he's done that. In view of his mercy, how are you going to live your life? Paul's saying, your identity is based on what he's already done for you, so how are you going to live accordingly? 
And because of what he's done for us, Paul would later, later tell the Ephesian church in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, this is what he's done for you. Because of his, Christ's sacrifice, you are chosen, you are adopted, you are accepted, you are redeemed, you are informed, you're an heir with Christ, and you're sealed by the Holy Spirit. I mean, just one of those particular words today may be what you need to hear. You were chosen. For, for any of us that have ever gone through an adoption process, we know what it feels like to finally adopt somebody. You were adopted because of what Christ did. You are a co-heir with him because of what he's done for you. A co-heir. That means that you have, as Paul would say in verse 3, every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing. There's nothing off limits to you as far as it goes with your relationship to Christ. It's all yours. If that's the case, then how are you going to live for him in view of God's mercy? Secondly, he goes on to say, we should present or offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. So this is how you should live. Present your body as a living sacrifice to God. Now, Paul here is talking about the old word picture of an actual sacrifice in the Old Testament times. You know what happened to those sacrifices? They died, and they stayed on the altar. What's funny about our sacrifice? Well, we'll read verses like, pick up your cross and carry it daily. And be like, oh yeah, 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 I want to carry my cross. And yet, at the last minute, we'll find a way to come right down off of it. Or come right off the altar. We'll find a way. Because what God is actually saying, okay, you truly want to be a living sacrifice? You truly want to live for me? Are you sure? Are you really sure? Because you may have to give up something. You may have to change. Oh, boy. A living sacrifice. Not just a one-time deal. Continual. Every day. Anything that hinders you and your relationship with God, you, you need to give it up. But we like to tell ourselves, well, I'm not that bad. And God, I really want to change, or we'll do something where we, to take a book, page out of Chip Ingram's book, we'll do something that we don't want to do, and the next day we'll be like, oh God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, please forgive me, please forgive me, and it's just cyclical, where finally the Holy Spirit's like, shut up. You like what you're doing. You don't want to change. You like exactly what you're doing. Until you're willing to give that up, will you truly be a sacrifice for me? Think about that for a second. Let that sink in. Chip Ingram goes on to say that surrender, total commitment, is the channel through which God's biggest and blessings flow. Let me read that to you again because I probably read that really fast. Surrender, or total commitment, is the channel through which God's biggest and best blessings flow. Are you getting the biggest? Are you getting the best? Maybe here's why not. Why should we live as a living sacrifice? Because Paul would say it's, in the New King James, it's our reasonable. If you have NIV or any other version, it may spiritual. Or it may say logical. It's your reasonable service. I mean, it just makes sense. It's what you should do. The smartest man in the world, well, in the biblical world, Solomon, who asked for God's wisdom specifically, knew this point. In fact, in Proverbs 1.7, he starts the book off with saying, the reverent fear of the Lord, that is worshiping him and regarding him as truly awesome, is the beginning and the preeminent part of knowledge. Basically, it's the starting point and it's the essence of it. He would later say in Ecclesiastes 12.13, when all has been heard, the end of the matter is this, fear God, worship him with awe-filled reverence, knowing that he is almighty God, and keep his commandments. This applies to everyone. Solomon, the wisest man, knew what it meant, what a reasonable service to God, a spiritual act of service, 
because it was the most logical thing. Is it the most logical thing for us to carry our cross daily as if Jesus Christ was our own cross? His cross was ours? The second thing that shapes our identity Paul speaks about is our relationship to the world system. Verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. Do not be conformed to this world. Simply put, don't allow the same patterns, the same nuances, the same things that others are doing become yours. Don't let everyone else define your identity. Words, things people do, comment sections on Facebook or any other thing that you may post on, it's real easy to read those things and think that's who we truly are. Same thing with patterns. You know you become the product of the five people you spend the most time with. I mean, be careful who you keep your company with. I'm not saying everybody should be believers. You should have unbelievers in your life so that they see Jesus Christ as well. But just be careful because they influence you, whether you like it or not. You see, our, while we want to know what our identity is, being conformed to the world is hard because the reality is most of us want to fit in. We want to be accepted. We want to be noticed. And we want people to agree with us. However, if we are to be true imitators of Christ, guess what? They're not going to agree with us. They hate you because they first hated him. Not conforming to the world, 1 John 2, 15-16. John says it like this. Don't set the affections of your heart on this world or in loving the things of the world. The love of the Father and the love of the world are incompatible. They don't go together. For all that the world can offer us, the gratification of our flesh, the allurement of the things of the world, and the obsession with status and importance, none of these things come from the Father, but they come from the world. Now, your Bible may say it differently. It may say things like lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, which the lust of the flesh is passion to feel or gratify physical desires. We'll call that hedonism. Paul talks about this in Galatians 5, where he says that the flesh never wants what the Spirit wants. Think about that for a second. If you have fleshly desires, is that what God wants? Probably not. Lust of the eyes, passion to possess things, or in other words, bowing down to the God of hedonism, or materialism, sorry. It's okay to have nice things. It's okay to have big things. It's okay to have better things. But if those things come between you and your relationship with God, they need not be there. They need to go as quickly as possible. Because we live in a world of bigger, better, faster, and more. But if the intents of your heart are right for those things, then okay, maybe they're all right. But if God knows those things are going to separate you and him, you might need to have a godly evaluation of why you want those things. And lastly, the pride of life. Nothing more than an obsession with status and importance. Narcissism. Anybody know of a narcissist? Sometimes when I look in the mirror, that's me. Especially when I'm sick. <laughs> There's no, no more narcissistic person on this planet when they're sick than me. Uh, because I uh, just, just kiddos, just kind of, you know, let daddy have his sleep and let daddy take his medicine and leave me alone. <laughs> We've all been there, so don't you laugh, but. So don't be conformed to this world. Instead, 
Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, because transformation always begins up here. You ever heard the saying, you are what you eat? You are what you think. The question becomes, are you shaped more by the world or by the word? Just like food will shape us, what we think will shape our minds. And if we have an unhealthy diet, what shape are we going to be? If we have an unhealthy mental diet, what kind of shape is our brain going to be in? So think about all the stuff you watch on YouTube, all the stuff you look at on TikTok. I know I'm speaking to an older audience. You're probably like, TikTok toe? What's that? <laughs> YoiTube? What's YoiTube? I don't know. I, uh, YouTube, that's, yeah. There's a movie the kids like. It's uh, the dad in the movie. He is totally um, technologically Ill illiterate. It's kind of He's like, I spent 20 minutes crying before I get on the computer. I think that's, yeah. Anyway, nonetheless. So you are, you are what you eat and you are what you think. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so you can prove, so you can prove what is good, that acceptable and perfect will of God. How many in here want to know the will of God? Especially for your life, right? I mean, who wouldn't? At least what Christian wouldn't, right? We all want to be in God's will. We all want to do what exactly he wants us to do. Now, it's funny. If you continue to listen, you might find that out. Okay. This is nothing more than Paul saying, you may prove for yourselves what the will of God is, which is good, acceptable, and perfect. Basically, his plan and purpose for you. So he goes on, on verse 3. He says, For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. As we go on to being transformed, renewal of our minds, we have to think accurately of ourselves. Sometimes a lot of us have baggage. We have things... Uh, insecurities, or we'll have our past come up. What Paul is saying is if you've been transformed by the renewing of your mind, those things don't matter. You need to let go of your past. Let it go. Because if you keep bringing it up, what happens to you? That's only a question you can answer. Insecurity? Well, if you have the presence of God and the Holy Spirit within you, what is there to be insecure about? I get insecure about being up here. Obviously, you can tell I messed up the whole thing. <laughs> but it takes practice, right? It takes learning from your mistakes. Be able to get into the mindset of failure. John Maxwell has written several books about failing forward. If you fail, you will start to learn. It's kind of like uh, there's a TED Talk on... Uh, Playing the game, playing Mario. And what do you do after you die? You just continue to keep playing. You keep playing, going through and learning the level. And then you get further in the game and you keep playing and you keep playing. You may die, you may not have infinite lives. Now, we, we don't have infinite lives, but, but you keep trying, you keep going. You don't stop. I admittedly have said this several times I am not a handyman. Sometimes I rely on. Frank, to do a lot of the stuff around the house. Just the other day, though, I got out of that insecurity and hung some crown molding. Crown molding sucks. <laughs> Especially when the room is not square. Or maybe you're not square. I don't know. But, you know, with, as, as Jessica said, caulk hides a lot of sins. But, you know, with the right tools, the right mentality, we got it done. It's done. And we can sit there and look at it as we get ready to move out of the house. Be, be like, well, hopefully the buyer likes it. <laughs> but you know what? Cutting, if you've ever cut crown molding, you know that you have to cut it at a certain angle, a certain way, and that you could fail. Okay, so be it. Let's do it. 
If you've got to go buy more, the hard, well, nowadays maybe they don't, but Menards and Lowe's should have more. They should have more. Don't be afraid to fail forward. Because you've renewed your mind. You start to think accurately about yourselves. It's not thinking too low of yourself. Oh, I'm stupid. Oh, I'm dumb. Oh, I can't do this. I can't do that. And it's not thinking too highly of yourself. Because guess what? God would tell you. You ain't all that in a bag of chips. You ain't the smartest. You ain't the strongest. You aren't everywhere. Guess who is? I am. So you need to learn your place. We need to learn who we're talking to sometimes, don't we? We talked about that on Sunday nights when we go to God in prayer. Sometimes we need to understand who we're actually praying to. Think accurately of ourselves. If we don't think accurate of ourselves, this often leads us away from who we truly are and keeps us from living a fulfilling and satisfied life God has created and intended for us. But once we grasp this truth, we won't think too lowly and we won't think too highly. Now, Paul starts to take this idea of who you are and integrate it together with the where do you belong and what you're supposed to do. Verses 4 through 8. He goes on to say this, For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives, gives with liberality, and who, he who leads with diligence, lead with diligence, he who shows mercy, let him do so with cheerfulness. Okay. There's a lot there. I don't expect you to get it all. But essentially what Paul is saying is that every Christian, every Christian, every Christian, every Christian is part of the body of Christ. They're not just a part of it, they belong. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 18, for God made the church. God put this group together. God put other churches together. Think about that for a second. doesn't mean you have to agree with everybody. doesn't mean you even have to like everybody. But it may mean that you have to love them. EGRs, extra grace required people. And I didn't stop at you, Sue, for a reason, but she knows that I love her. But there aren't there. You don't have to agree. You don't even have to like them. But you do have to love them. And we'll learn that here in a second. What Paul is really doing as he goes on is that he's using the human body to explain the church, the nature of the church, and how every Christian belongs. Now, I can go into science and anatomy and about how your organs and muscles and tissues and all that good stuff function, but you don't need me to tell you that. You've been around long enough to understand that. But the real thing is, is what happens when one of those things doesn't function properly and fails to contribute to the overall system? Ooh, not Good times not had by all, right? If you go to 1 Corinthians 12, Paul uses this analogy of civil war in which members of the body refuse to function and eventually become jealous of one another. Whew. So we know what happens when body parts don't function the way properly they should, connected to the whole system of the human body. Now here's Paul saying this is what it looks like in an analogy. And I'm going to read from the message 1 Corinthians 12, 15 through 21, because I love how Eugene Patterson puts this. He says, I want you to think about how all this makes you more significant and not less. A body isn't just a single part, blown up into something huge. It's all the different but similar parts arranged and functioning together. If foot said, I'm not elegant like hand, embellished with rings, I guess I don't belong to this body. Would that make it so? If ear said, I'm not beautiful like eye, 
transparent and expressive. I don't deserve a place on the head at all. Would you want to remove it? <laughs> if the body was all an eye, could it hear? If all an ear, could it smell? As it is, we see that God has carefully placed each part of the body right where he wanted it. But I also want you to think about how this keeps you, your significance from getting blown into self-importance. For no matter how significant you are, it is only because of what you are a part of. Let me reread that for again for a second. For no matter how significant you are, it is only because of what you're a part of. An, enor uh, yeah. An enormous eye or a gigantic hand wouldn't be a body but a monster. What we have is one body with many parts, each its proper size and its proper place. No part is important on its own. Yes, there are significant parts in our church, but no part is important on its own. Can you imagine I telling hand, get lost, I don't need you. Or head telling foot, you're fired. Your job has been phased out. As a matter of fact, in practice, it works the other way. The lower the part, the more basic and necessary it is. You can live without an eye, for instance, but not without a stomach. When it's a part of your body, you are concerned with it. It makes no dif difference whether the part is visible or clothed, higher or lower. You give it dignity and honor just as it is without comparison. If anything, you have more concern for the lower parts than the higher. If you had to choose, wouldn't you prefer good digestion over full-bodied hair? I think that's kind of a humorous way of entering, but everyone in here matters. If you're a believer of Jesus Christ and you come to Free Life Community Church, you're all part of the body. I don't know why you're here, how you got here, or whatever, but ultimately it's it, what Paul is saying, God made this church. Pastor didn't call up specific people based on their abilities and whatnot. God made it. You're here for a reason, according to his will and his purpose. No part is more significant than the other. While certain parts have importance, pastor's ultimately the one in charge, the other pastor's just below him, and yeah, sure, there's a hierarchy. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't be any more humble than anybody else, or any less humble. Pride and arrogance definitely don't have their place. So bringing this back to Romans 12, Paul is just simply saying that God commands... We serve in harmony to one another as a body functions in harmony. You know, you think about those lower parts that may not mean anything. I dare you to cut your pinky toe off and try walking. You may think it's insignificant. Try walking and see how that works for you. You're going to fall over real quick. Now, if you cut any of your toes, it's going to be hard to walk. But <laughs> and don't, please don't. Pastor, Pastor Chris don't challenge me to cut my toes off. I guess I didn't say triple dog dare, did I? But nonetheless, your pinky toe matters. <laughs> God commands we serve in harmony. Why? Because disharmony is never God's plan. Never. And if the parts of the human body don't work together, guess what? You ultimately die. Your body, your body parts are never jealous of one another. They work in tandem, in harmony. They're simply glad to be a part of the overall function. And the same must be true of our church. The second image of the church that Paul underscores here is the family of God. Family members should love one another and help one another, making the church a special place where God is honored and members serve him together. I want you to think about your family just for a second. And I'm sure there are certain people in your family that extra grace is required. And think about your church family then. 
where people may have extra grace required, if we can't serve them accordingly, how are we going to serve anywhere? And then if you go back to your own family, who are un maybe unbelievers, if you're not living out accordingly, why would they want to come to church? Why would they want to be a Christian if you treat them like garbage? It's just something to think about. But if that carries over to the body of Christ, which you're a member of, and we all should be united and loving, it better not be, I guess. Family members should love one another and help one another, making the church a special place where God is honored and members serve one another. You know, one of the best things that happened to me this summer was being able to help Katie and Frank help Deb move. And, you know, getting the call at the, you know, a moment when you're like, well, I've got our other plans. It's like, nope, those other plans don't matter. You know, God blessed me with a truck for a reason. And being able to use that blessing to help others is exactly what he wants me to do. And that's what we did. And that was an honor to be able to help and help her move. We should have more of that going on, yeah? Paul later goes on to say that there is a gift for everyone. Every Christian is gifted for service. And this isn't simply equipped, because we may underscore or we may undervalue our gifts. No, we're clearly gifted by God for service in our church. Clearly. Paul uses a specific word in the Greek. It's charismata. And you may figure out that the word charisma comes from that word. Paul's use of it is underscored that this is a gift of grace in the Holy Spirit which is bestowed upon every Christian for service in the church and community. Now, overall, there are 20 gifts list, list, listed in the New Testament. Here, though, Paul only lists seven. His point is this. Every believer is not only called to a life of service, but every believer is supposed to minister. Now, we often misperceive this word ministry or minister to, to just make somebody important. You know, we have a senior pastor. We have an assistant pastor and myself, Jonathan, Pastor Bob, and then eventually uh, Heather. We use those labels to make somebody important. What Paul is really saying here is, nah, you're all ministers. Based on the word that he's using, you're all ministers, whether you like it or not. If you believe in Jesus Christ, guess what you said yes to? Being a minister. We'll use things like he's our minister, which means the pastor or some staff member or leader, whatever, because they're licensed or ordained. But the misconception is inaccurate since every Christian, 1 Peter 2.5, is a minister, whether in leadership or not. And Paul's usage of this word simply means to serve others or meet their needs. Anybody can do that, right? If you see a need, fill it. Ever heard that before? I think it comes from the movie Robots. Another kid's movie. I make a lot of kid's movie references, don't I? That's because they dominate our TV. You got three of them, it's hard to fight them all off at once. They outnumber us. But basically, the word minister that he uses here at verse... Seven, ministry to ministering is nothing more than just serving others and helping meet, meet their needs. We can do that. Anyone can do that. Doesn't matter how much time in school you've, you've had. Doesn't matter. Anyone can fulfill that and fill that role. Paul's essentially asking, why aren't you? Where are you? Because you know people have needs. If you don't know, ask them, can I do anything for you today? Can I help you in any way? Sometimes we don't want to ask those questions because we don't want to be burdened. We don't want to inconvenienced. I get it. I got a life. I do things that other people wouldn't do just so that I'm not incon inconveniencing others, so to speak, like getting up at 3.30 in the morning to go work out. Because I know that when I come home, mommy's been with the kids all day. Kids likely haven't had fun. <laughs> and they're going to want some daddy time, right? They're going to want to go out, play football, play video games, whatnot. I'm just, you know, that's, I'm just teasing. But, 
But, but they do their schooling with Jess, you know, I, whatnot. They get, they get to have field trips, what, whatever, you know, but when Daddy comes home, it's game on, right? But because I get to come home at an earlier time, because my boss allows me to, I get to come home at around 3 o'clock when they normally be getting off school anyway. I'm able to enjoy that evening and afternoon with them. Yeah, 3.30. Not every morning is great. Coffee becomes your best friend. But I enjoy doing that just because I get that time with them. What if we did that for people in our church? What if we went out of our way just to enjoy that time we get to spend with them? I'm sure we could fulfill a need or even just hang out, have fun. When was the last time you had fun with somebody in church? Tuesday nights, maybe? Friday nights, maybe? That's, you know, small groups aren't all just about study, study, study. There's times we have fun. But there are times when it's, it's important to learn. Every Christian is gifted for service. So minister is often misperceived. And 1 Peter, 1, or 1 Peter 2, 5 will tell you that, guess what? You're a leader whether you like it or not. You're a minister whether you like it or not. But there's a secret hidden within this. Yes, who we are is, in our identity is shaped by our relationship to Christ, our relationship to the world, and how we think about ourselves. And where we belong is in the church, and what we're supposed to do is given here. But he goes on to say that there's actually a really a secret to help you fully grasp this entire idea. That if you fully grasp it, not only will your identity be secure, where, what you do will be secure, and where you belong will be secure. Would you want to know it? Paul goes on to say that if we discover, develop, and use our individual God-ordained, supernatural, specific gift and service, the life that we've dreamed of, the one God has created for us and intended for us, will become a reality. Now you see, in this way, every Christian is a minister. And secondly, there cannot be a dissension or jealousy over which gift is given to who. Just as in any human body. You all have a gift. When you said yes to Jesus, you got the gift of the Holy Spirit. And with that became a specific, supernatural gift given to you. Now, sure, we have tests and cookie-cutter question-and-answer things that try to help you identify that. Maybe you should. Maybe you should go online and find a spiritual gifts test to figure out what you're gifted to do. But sometimes it's just as easy as looking at what you're passionate about as it relates to Christ and God. I mean, if you're passionate about sports, can't you change that and modify that to be used in the church? If you're passionate about computers, if you're compassionate about business, if you're comp compassionate about all these things, can't you use that as a ministry to help others as God intended? I know I, I have a friend, her name is Katie Wolf. She's um, fully licensed in a uh, workout program that is gospel-related, and she does it every Thursday before Bible study up at Mecca at that gym that's next to the church, if you're familiar with the area. So she's using what she believes is her gift to help the kingdom of God. Not only like, is she helping the kingdom in her sense, in the way that she would, but she's also helping shape the temple of the Holy Spirit. Because that's what your body is. How's the temple? So now that you know who we, know that, that we know who we are, where we belong and what we're supposed to do, the real question comes down to is how. So your identity is shaped by your relationship to Christ. Your identity is shaped by how you conform to the world and the patterns of this world. But you should be transformed. How you think accurately about yourselves. You should be a part of the church, the body of Christ. And you have a spiritual gift as what you're supposed to do. 
but how? Right? I mean, it's, it's cool to identify all this stuff, but how do you use it? Nine th verses 9 through 21, Paul outlines this. And to save you the uh, William Shatner monotone reading, I'll just go through each verse by verse, okay? Verse 9. I don't know if you're ready to hear this one or not. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Anybody in here like being called a hypocrite? No, not at all. Do you think maybe people think that way about you, how you treat them? You call yourself a Christian, huh? Can you love people that are quote-unquote unlovable? Now, Paul is talking about the church. Are there people in the church that you just do not like? You just don't, oh, I hope they don't come see me, kind of thing. Could Paul be calling you a hypocrite? Now, what about those people that look at evil things or watch evil things, whatever? Yeah, Paul's saying hate that stuff, but hold them accountable. Remember, see the good in them, but also hold them accountable. Tell them, look, brother, I saw you look at this, or you did this, and I was—I don't think it's—I don't think it's right. Verse ten: Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, and honor giving preference. So, oh, give preference to one another. Essentially, what he's saying is treat others like brothers and sisters, giving preference to one another, which honors them. There are times when you're not going to be able to spend time with people. There are times where you're going to be busy. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Life is busy. In fact, Jessica and I were just having a discussion the other day, like, where did September and October go? We went on vacation in August, and all of a sudden it's November. Does anybody else's lives feel like that right now? Like, fall is trying to catch up. Like, in the last second, it got super cold, and all the leaves are starting to turn, and now they're all starting to fall. It's like fall that didn't get the memo either. I get it. So I'm not telling you got to spend every waking moment with every brother and sister in Christ, but at least spend some. And at least give honor and preference to one another. Right? Is it really that hard? Is it really going to be that horrible? And no, Sue, it's not going to be that horrible. <laughs> but nonetheless... Spending time with Sue Schalberg. <laughs> I love you, Sue. <laughs> Verse 11. Do all this stuff while not lagging in diligence, being fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Ultimately, what Paul is saying, if you love one another and you treat them with preference and honor, ultimately, who are you serving? Him. Right? Not yourself, not the others. You're serving them because they're in the body of Christ. You're serving Christ. I love how uh, Paul puts this in Colossians 3, 23 through 24. He says, whatever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord. That's kind of a tongue twister if you read it fast. But... Serve others as if you're serving the Lord and not just men. I think that translates not only in the church, but your workplace. What if you started to perceive your boss as God? What if your work ethic, the kind of work you did, was filtered through that? Do you think God would honor that? I think Paul, Paul says so. Verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, continue steadfastly in prayer. Be joyful because you have hope. Be patient and endure when troubles come, and pray at all times faithfully with persistence and perseverance. Now, Sunday evenings, we're doing, we're, we've been talking about prayer since August, I think it was, when, we, when I started. I mean, every Sunday night's been about prayer, every Sunday night, because it's an exhaustive topic. 
one I think the church is failing to do a lot of lately. That's why I think God has called me to that particular subject. Would it be so horrible to pray for others? And Paul's saying, do it within the body of the body of the church. Pray for others. Because I think we can all have a testimony that while we prayed for something, something came out of it. You know, think about that Wednesday night we had prayer for Amanda. My rabbi, as I like to call her. Inside joke, but... Ethan is here. And she got through COVID. When the worst looked the worst. Miracles still happen. But I think a lot of times we leave a lot of them up in heaven. That's very convicting, isn't it? Lastly, verse 13. This is shaped through for believers. Distribute to the needs of the saints given to hospitality. Nothing more than Paul saying be hospitable and look for ways to meet the needs of the saints. In this paragraph, Paul writes about the rules of the house in that being a part of the body of Christ, we not only discover and use our gifts, we also live a life of goodness and love before others with other members of the church. We call these members of the church the saints to whom we're related in the body and in the family and we're called to love them. Now, what about people outside of the church? Well, not yet. Sorry, one more point. (laughs) Even the most individualistic person, the individuals of individuals in here, they need the presence of others. They may not like to think that. They may like to have their solitude, whatever, but you still need somebody. You still need that presence of another person. You still need to talk. As I like to say, my wife needs to talk to an adult because she's been talking to three kids all day. Right? She still needs that. We still need that interaction. I mean, there's no hermits in the Bible, are there? If you want to be a monk, go to a monastery. I like to think of this in terms of the movie Fireproof. Now, if you've ever seen it, it's a really good movie. That's actually one I would recommend. Uh, The police chief is having, or the police, the fire chief is having issues with his marriage. And with that, they have a team member that tells them about, you know, in a marriage, it's like salt and pepper, and he glues the salt and pepper together, and they can't take it apart, because if you did, you would destroy the salt and pepper shakers. There's a particular point in the movie where there's a car accident that happens right on a railroad track. And the first responders show up. They're trying to get dispatch for the train to make sure there's no trains coming in, and if there are, they need to reroute them. How many of us could say that our life sometimes feels like a car accident with a train coming behind it to wreck it all? You want to know why you need to be a part of your body and love one another? To get that car off the train tracks, just like they do in the movie. If you've never seen that part in the movie, that part is gut-wrenching because it comes so close, the train comes so close to hitting one of the fire department members, it takes his helmet off. Who is your spiritual first responder? Is it only pastor? Because I guess what? If he had to handle everybody in this room, do you think he could do it just in 24 hours? That's why church, small groups, is so important. You need spiritual first responders to get your life that feels like a car accident off the train track of disaster. Because it's coming. It's called life. Are you going to meet it with everybody else? Or are you just going to meet it like the world meets it? Well, you can take this, or you can t- have a little bit of alcohol before you go to bed. I don't have a drinking problem. You know, just, I'll just keep having, and it becomes more and more and more because your body gets used to it. Or it's a, some kind of pill, or it's some kind of buying obsession. You've got to fulfill that need with some money or with some material item. John's already said that's the lust of the eyes. The pride of life, the lust of the flesh. You're going to meet that need with something else. You should have met it spiritually, right? You should have met it with the body of Christ. Because that's what we're here for. That's what we're supposed to do. And yes, I know, 
I fail miserably too. So I'm not just saying this because, oh, you guys are bad. I do my part perfectly. Nah, that ain't, that ain't true. I don't do my job perfectly, as evidenced this morning. As I said Wednesday night, my ignorance on full display. Okay, so while verses 9 through 13 is about believers, now we go into the non-believers, which is a very difficult subject for a lot of people, especially for Christians. Okay. Bless those who persecute you. Let me reread that in case you didn't catch it. You're a Christian, and in all likelihood, you're going to have people that don't like Christianity, don't want anything to do with it, and guess what they're going to do? They're going to persecute you. Paul's really saying, bless those who persecute you? Yeah. In fact, he says, bless and do not curse. Then he goes on to say, rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. The last part of verse 17. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Seek his will in all that you do and he will guide your path. But a lot of times we don't read verse 7, which ultimately says what Paul just said. Do not be wise in your own mind. It's real easy to accumulate knowledge it's real easy to accumulate understanding and apply those things regularly and get big-headed. We have an infinite, through our cell phones, whatever, we have an avenue for lots of wisdom and knowledge. And it's real easy to rely upon because it's tangible. It's always there for us. That's how the world operates. But as Christians, we should have one avenue and it should be a vertical avenue. We should be trusting him with all of our hearts. We can't help other people with their problems if that's not our first avenue. Because guess what avenue they're going to lean on is their own understanding. They need your godly perspective. Verse 17, repay no evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Verse 18, if it is possible, as much as it depends on you... Live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place for wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, big capital M, I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. And last but not least, negative command, do not be overcome by evil but instead overcome evil with good. So Paul ultimately is just instructing us, as he did the Church of Rome, that we should associate with those that are less than, and we must be humbly concerned with those in the world who are often overlooked. Usually this, those that are poverty-stricken or um, who are suffering, but we're not supposed to enable anybody. That's kind of where we get confused, is enablement. God's not calling us to enable people that are unwilling to change their circumstances. He's calling us to serve, and in so doing, not enabling them. Then bless those who persecute us. means that we love another group outside the church, no matter what. Yes, there are people of science. Yes, there are people of lots of understanding. In fact, we have some in our church that know that. Yeah, I get it. But it's okay to disagree with them. But at the same time, you better not be throwing your brains in the trash either. Because they have hard questions, right? They want to know things about the Bible that seem contradictory. They want answers, just like we did. Always have an answer for the hope that's inside of you, as Peter would say. Always have an answer. Now, if you don't have an answer, it's real easy to say, well, that's a very good question, but I can't answer it right now. Maybe if you give me some time, I'll come back with a good answer. Is there anything wrong with that? You don't have to have every answer right off the bat. Verse 
We have a special calling to live out and live above the cynicism of this unbelieving world. And we have a calling to respond in a different way. So as the music team comes up, and as Scotty is beamed up at Mecca, what I'm ultimately trying to say, or what God is ultimately trying to say through this chapter, is this, and I think it can be summarized like this. In this dark and fallen world, there is evil, right? We can all attest to that. But guess what? You are my light, and you are my instruments. Thanks for listening to the Free Life Community Church Podcast. For more great biblically sound teaching, visit freelifecc.com.